Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, important announcements. There are a number of announcements that I want to make tonight. They actually fall into the four following categories. The first is the financial situation of the podcast. The second has to do with the direction of the podcast and different projects that I would like to pursue. The third has to do with an update on the hashtag Give Thanks program podcast that we did last Wednesday regarding President Nelson's call upon members of the church to post what they're thankful for in social media for the seven days leading up to Thanksgiving. And finally, a special surprise that I have not announced on this show, but that is ongoing behind the scenes. First off, the finances of the program. Now, my mom, who was born in 1922, October 11th, 1922, She was actually old enough to be my grandmother. I came along somewhat late in life. I was a great blessing and delight to them, I'm sure. But because she was born in 1922, she was raised as a teenager during the Great Depression. She lived in a little town outside of Abilene called Cross Plains, Texas. She was one of six girls, and while they were young, their dad left their mother to fend for herself and provide for the family. They actually lived in a small house, a shack might be a better word for it, with a hard-packed dirt floor. So this is the situation that my mom grew up in, and as a result, she was always very, very reluctant to talk about the issue of money. This is something she drilled into my head over and over again, was that you just don't talk about money with people. That's something that's private. It's not something that should be discussed. And so that's my upbringing, and I have to fight against that to talk with you about money. The first thing I want to say is that I appreciate all of you who have contributed and donated to Radio Free Mormon. Your donations do keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. The second thing I have to say is that something unusual happened in the third quarter of 2020. In the third quarter of this year, donations for whatever reason dropped by half of what they had been in previous quarters. Now, I know there's a lot that's going on in our society today, but with all the problems associated with the COVID-19 pandemic, believe me, I understand that. And so what I wanna do at this point is to ask each of you who are regular listeners to this program to donate $10 a month, basically the price of a pizza, $10 a month, For most people, that's something that you can afford. If for some reason you're in this minority of people who $10 a month is going to be the difference between your being able to pay the electricity bill or listen to Radio Free Mormon, then you should contribute to Radio Free Mormon. No, I'm not going to say that because that's what the church would say about tithing. No, if actually the $10 a month is something that keeps you from paying the electricity bill or putting food on the table for your kids, no, you should actually keep that $10 and pay the electricity bill and feed your kids. That's one way that Radio Free Mormon is different from the LDS church. On the other hand, if you can afford $10 a month, what I'm going to ask you to do right now is to go to the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage. And I'm going to do that right now while I'm talking with you so we can go through this together. I'm going to type in Radio Free Mormon into my search engine. Bring up RadioFreeMormon.org. Go to the webpage where it shows that I now have over 200 episodes produced. 
If you look on the right side, it says Contact Mormon Discussions Podcast, and right below that, it says Support the Podcast and Donate Today. Then there's a big picture with the logo of Radio Free Mormon. There's a little yellow box under it that says Donate. Click on that, and it takes you to the page titled Donate to Mormon Discussion, Inc., which supports the Radio Free Mormon podcast. That's the correct page. I've received some questions and messages from listeners regarding how it is that they can contribute in order to make sure that their donation goes to Radio Free Mormon as opposed to some other podcast entity. This is how you do it. Once again, go to the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage, follow the prompts that I've given you, and then click on Donate on the second page. And now that brings up a page that says Donate to Radio Free Mormon Purpose Help Us Broadcast Behind Enemy Lines. It has three boxes. It has $10, $50, $100, and then other amount. What I want to ask you to do is to go to the $10 a month. If you want to go to $50 or $100, fine. I'm not going to stop you. Believe me. But what I'm asking each of my regular listeners to do at this time is to go to the one that says $10 a month, the smallest amount. Click on $10 a month, and then right underneath that, I'd like you to click the box that says Make This a Monthly Donation. That brings up a box that says You'll Authorize PayPal to Pay Radio Free Mormon Each Month. You can change or cancel a recurring donation anytime in your PayPal account settings. If you don't have PayPal, sign up easily while entering your payment information. And then go down and say donate with PayPal or there's another box under it that says donate with a debit or credit card. Now, I know that we all hear requests for donations from a variety of different podcasts, a variety of different entities. At least I do on a regular basis. And the first thing I think of is when it's somebody that maybe I should contribute to because I do listen regularly to their podcast. The first thought I have is, yeah, I should do that. But the second thought that comes immediately after is, well, you know, other people will donate, so I don't really need to. It's too much bother. That's why I'm taking this time to lead you through the different prompts to get you here. Because I want you to move past that second thought. If you are like me and that second thought comes hard on its heels, please, if you are a regular listener to this program, go through these prompts. Go to the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage. Click Donate. Come to this page, click $10, make it a monthly donation, and then you will be helping Radio Free Mormon broadcast from behind enemy lines. On the one hand, this podcast is a labor of love for me. It is my passion. It is my joy to research Mormonism and to bring you my thoughts, my observations, my research in podcast form. On the other hand, it takes a great deal of work, time, effort, researching these subjects, assembling my thoughts, recording the podcast and editing the podcast, and then producing the podcast and putting it up on the air for you to listen to. I do not have the luxury at this time of doing this podcast full time. I have to run my law practice full time and do the Radio Free Mormon podcast on the side as pretty much a half-time job on top of my full-time job. So really, your contributions will continue to keep me broadcasting behind enemy lines. So please take the time right now to make that $10 monthly donation. Or if you are in your car listening to this podcast right now and you're not able to get to a computer to do that right now, please commit to do that before the sun goes down. Just $10 a month from each of my regular listeners will keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. It is your way of showing me that you appreciate the podcast and that you want it to continue. Now, let me go to the second announcement, which has to do with the future of this program. There are so many projects 
that I want to pursue, so many ideas that have come to me, and so many things that I want to podcast about. You might think that after 200 episodes of Radio Free Mormon dealing with many fascinating issues related to Mormonism, I'd about be running out of things to talk about. But no, that is not the case. I have more and more things that I want to talk about. Let me share with you a few of those things that I want to be able to get into in future podcasts. The number of things is actually kind of overwhelming to me. Let me give you a few examples right now. First off, I had purchased the book about a year ago now, the revised edition by D. Michael Quinn of his famous book, Mormonism and the Magic World View. I read the first chapter of that book. It's very dense reading. D. Michael Quinn is an amazing historian and he packs a lot of information into every paragraph. And I had marked up the first chapter. I didn't go beyond the first chapter because I wanted to do a podcast about the amazing insights in this first chapter, but I never got around to it. That is something that is in the offing, something that is on the back burner for future podcast episodes. Another thing that's going on right now is that I recently got the book. It was actually sent to me by a listener on the LDS Gospel Topics essays related to those controversial aspects of the church that are hidden cleverly three clicks deep on the LDS.org website. Once again, sorry, not LDS.org anymore, churchofjesuschrist.org. And I'm making my way through those essays. I'm finding them very well written. I'm learning a lot of things, a lot of things I already know, but the insights that I'm gaining from it that these authors have put into these essays are very valuable. And I want to share those with you as well, probably on a chapter by chapter basis. But once again, that's something that is in the future. Another book that I've actually read through a number of months ago, which was recommended to me highly by a listener to this program. It was actually Brian Hauglid who suggested that I read the book titled Visions in a Seer Stone. And the reason that he suggested this to me was because of the podcast that I did a number of months ago called Magic and the Book of Mormon. That's the episode where I looked at the translation process of the Book of Mormon, not as a Mormon, not as a historian, not as a lawyer, but as a a magician. The method that Joseph Smith used in order to translate the Book of Mormon had nothing to do with the rock. It had everything to do with the hat that the rock was placed into. It was about the hat. And what I suggested was that because this was a top hat, a stovepipe hat, and it was white in color, that it was not black inside when Joseph Smith put his face over it. Instead, the fact that it was white allowed light to come in through the sides of the hat and it was probably dim inside, but it was somewhat translucent. And therefore, Joseph Smith could actually see inside the hat. He could see the rock inside the hat. It was not black, but he could also see anything else that he might have at the bottom of the hat, up to and including pages that he may have had in there with possibly outlines of what it was that he was going to dictate that day. And the reason that Brian Howley got so excited when he read this book is that it seemed to completely support that possibility. Now, I'm not going to go into detail on this book now. Once again, I've read through it. I marked it all up. I'm very excited and want to have an opportunity to talk about it with you. But this book supports that idea completely. It talks about the sermon culture in Joseph Smith's day, how many people who gave sermons did so off of 
very brief outlines. And they were able to take those outlines and expatiate into very lengthy sermons. Not only was this done with sermons, which appear, of course, frequently in the Book of Mormon, but it could also and was done with historical subjects, which also appear frequently in the Book of Mormon. In fact, the Book of Mormon is basically history plus sermons. Well, plus the KJV in a lot of places. But you get the idea. And as I read the book, I kept wondering if the author was going to make that connection between these notes and the translation of the Book of Mormon or the dictation of the Book of Mormon and the idea that they could have been placed in the bottom of the hat for Joseph Smith to look into and therefore see them in the dim light that was allowed into the hat because it was white and therefore use those notes in order to dictate at length the text of the Book of Mormon. But the author never quite got there. He never made that connection and that's probably because the author, although an excellent historian, was not a magician. So I want to do a podcast about that book, Visions in a Seer Stone. There are other ideas for podcasts that I have that I've mentioned before. One of them has to do with the fact that last year in 2019, I read through a collection of all the Sherlock Holmes stories. And there are a number of things in the Sherlock Holmes stories that have application to Mormonism, methods of deduction, how Sherlock Holmes was able to arrive at the correct conclusions in a number of his cases. Now, once again, of course, Sherlock Holmes was a fictional character. But on the other hand, the methods of deduction that Arthur Conan Doyle, the author, put into the mouth and the stories about Sherlock Holmes were considered so revolutionary and so important that Arthur Conan Doyle was invited on multiple occasions to go to Scotland Yard to teach those principles to the detectives there. So I would like to do an episode or more dealing with how Sherlock Holmes stories help illuminate issues related to Mormonism. On top of that, I have developed in the last 20 years a fascination and a familiarity with the plays of Shakespeare. I've referred a couple of times to different parts of those plays or different lines from those plays throughout the first 200 podcasts, but what I would like to do is to go into a number of those plays and talk about what we can learn about Mormonism from the Bard. I recently reread Macbeth, which I try to do once a year, usually in October, in anticipation of Halloween, because Macbeth is definitely the spookiest of Shakespeare's plays. I mean, it's got three witches plus a bloody ghost. What could be better for Halloween than that? But there are a number of themes that are developed in the play Macbeth that have application, direct application, to Mormonism and help us to understand more about the human condition and how that human condition can relate to Mormonism and religion in general. I've learned many great lessons from William Shakespeare about life and about religion, and I want to have the opportunity to share some of those with you. Now let's talk about interviews. I've been doing a number of interviews in the program in the past year, and a lot of those have been very, very well received. There was an interview with Lila Tuller, who is the daughter of Hartman Rector Jr., a very famous general authority. There was my interview with Brian Hauglid earlier this year, recently retired from being a professor in the Religious Studies Department at Brigham Young University. That episode, by the way, has been by far and away the most downloaded and listened to podcast I have done out of all 200. There was the several episodes that I did with David Bakavoit, which were very, very interesting for me and which were very well received. And I hope I'm not forgetting anybody. I'm just naming a few off the top of my head. I don't have any notes in front of me. I'm just going off memory, so I don't want to offend anybody whom I might have forgotten. There was also, however, the interview that I did with John DeLynn of 
Robert Rittner. And this just fell into my lap. John DeLynn was able to secure an interview with Robert Rittner, world famous Egyptologist, on the subject of the Book of Abraham. And John DeLynn was kind enough to invite me onto the program to join in that interview. That's what I mean when I say it just fell into my lap. This was like a dream come true for me. I could not believe that I was able to be in the same room virtually with Robert Rittner and be able to ask him questions related to the book of Abraham and the research that he's done on that in his life. And he was very, very gracious to give of his time, a lot of his time, about 13 hours of his time in doing this multi-part podcast. And John DeLynn was very gracious in inviting me on board to be part of that podcast. More recently, I have interviewed Philip McLemore, and we did a two-part podcast about his experience, not only as an apologist for the church, but also as an institute director for the church, and also many of his stories related to his experiences with general authorities in the church. Oh, I almost forgot. <laughs> I shouldn't forget Carolyn Pearson. Oh my gosh, she would never forgive me. Yes, I was able to do an interview with Carolyn Pearson. That was wonderful too. So once again, I don't want to offend anybody. If I forget you, please forgive me. I'm just doing these off the top of my head. But those are interviews I've done in the past. There are a lot more interviews that are already planned for the future. For example, this coming Friday, by the way, I'm recording this on Wednesday. December 2nd, 2020. This coming Friday, I have an interview scheduled with John Kirk Williams, whose name you may not know, but a few years back, he wrote a book called Heaven Up Here. And it is a book that chronicles his missionary experience in the early 1980s to Bolivia. I got a copy of that book from Amazon. I have read it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I recommend it highly. I'm putting a plug in for the book now. I'll put in another plug when I talk with him on Friday. But he is going to share a lot of his missionary experiences and things that he has learned from that missionary experience about the church and about the way it operates and about how there's this unwritten rule. You know, Boyd K. Packer talked about the unwritten order of things. Well, John Kirk Williams is going to talk about this unwritten rule that many of us are sort of aware of, that when it comes to talking about your missionary experiences in church, the unwritten rule is you only talk about the positive stuff that happened on your mission, the faith-promoting stuff that happened on your mission, and the 95% or more of it that is not good or faith-promoting, you really don't talk about because you're not supposed to talk about that kind of stuff when it comes to missionary work. I'm looking forward to that discussion on Friday and I hope to slip in a few of my missionary experiences as well. I think it'll be a lot of fun. Another interview that's coming up has to do with a friend of mine named Sue. And I knew her 30 years ago, back when she was married to a fellow. They had this perfect Mormon family. They had five children. They were as TBM as TBM could be until her husband started going off the rails and investigating polygamist offshoot groups of the LDS church. Well, he became converted to polygamy. He went through this process of converting his wife through a somewhat coercive and manipulative method to the practice of polygamy. They ended up moving to Idaho and subsequently to Mexico down to a compound down there so that he could continue to practice his polygamy. She went with him. There were multiple wives. There were multiple adventures until finally she escaped from that situation, came back to the United States, maintained her belief, which I was somewhat surprised about, but maintained her belief in the truthfulness of the LDS church, even after experiencing everything that she had as part of this polygamous group, and then more recently has decided that the LDS church is not what it claims to be and wants to talk about her story. We actually had that interview scheduled previous to this, but she had to cancel at the last moment. So hopefully we'll be able to do that here before the end of the year. 
also lined up is an interview with Simon Southerton. This is the scientist who has dealt heavily with the subject of DNA and the Book of Mormon. Simon Southerton lives in Australia, so it's going to be a bit of a challenge juggling the time difference, but we are committed to making it work. And hopefully we'll be able to do that by the end of the year as well. Simon Southerton has an interesting story in the church. His insights on DNA are fascinating. He presented on the subject at last year's Sunstone. And on top of that, he has some very, very interesting things to say about Kennewick Man. If you know who that is, then you know who that is. If not, I'm not going to take the time to describe it here. But Kennewick Man and its use, or as he would say, its misuse by the Meldrumites, or in other words, <laughs> or in other words, that group of Mormons who believe in what is called the Heartland Theory, i.e., that the Book of Mormon actually did not take place down in South or Central America, but it took place where Joseph Smith said it took place in North America and specifically around the area of the Hill Cumorah. So I'm really looking forward to that interview as well. I have a number of other potential interviews lined up which are not quite as far along in preparation. So I don't want to announce them right now. But trust me, there's lots of interviews to be done with fascinating people, fascinating things to say about Mormonism. So there's all those interviews on top of all these other subjects that I want to do podcasts about. Now, as I announced on my Facebook page, Bill Reel and I are inaugurating a new podcast. And that should be starting on Wednesday, December 9th. 2020. It's going to be called Mormonism Live and we will meet for an hour or an hour and a half on Wednesday evening and it's going to be a live show. It's going to be streamed live and we are going to be able to take calls from the audience. I think that what we will do is spend about the first half talking about some subjects related to Mormonism and perhaps some of the subjects that I've already mentioned I'll be able to work in during the first part of some of those podcasts. I want to give Bill enough time to talk as well, of course. And then during the second half, we'll take calls from listeners who we will encourage to ask questions about the subject matter, but if they have questions about something else, I'm sure that will be fine too. And we're very excited about this because right now I'm sitting here in my underground bunker. I'm recording this podcast. It is not live. I have made so many mistakes. I'm going to be taking at least three hours to edit this and go back and take out all the things that I've said that were wrong, all the big gaps in time while I'm thinking about what I'm going to say next so it can sound like I'm marginally coherent. This new program, Mormonism Live, however, I won't be able to do any of that. It's all going to go out live. It's going to go out as it is. So on the one hand, it's kind of scary for me. But on the other hand, it's going to have a lot of immediacy. And I think it'll be a lot more exciting than what it is that I'm doing now, at least for me and hopefully for you as well. We're trying to keep the podcast new. We're trying to keep it fresh. We're trying to change things up in order to keep you, the audience, entertained and engaged as well as informed and enlightened. And you know, just when I think there's too much to talk about Mormonism based upon the stuff that I already have planned, all of a sudden out of the woodwork comes something like this new podcast series that has just premiered over at the Fair Mormon website. And this is a series of podcasts featuring Kwaku L and some friends of his where they're making a series of podcasts that are apologetic in nature. Of course, it's apologetic in nature. It's appearing on the Fair Mormon website, but it's also edgy. It's aggressive. It's calling out people by name like Jeremy Runnels and the CES letter and others. I understand that they even have a new one out going after John DeLynn of all people. And I have received a number of comments from listeners 
wanting me to talk about these different podcasts at Fair Mormon. And I think that in our first episode on Mormonism Live, Bill Reel and I will talk to some degree about these podcasts. That may indeed be the first thing that we talk about is these new podcasts at Fair Mormon. I don't know how in-depth we will go because after you peel off the veneer of the youthful edginess, craziness, controversialness of the way these things are being presented, basically it's the same old apologetic arguments presented in the same old apologetic kind of way, which is we hide stuff, we spend stuff, we even misquote stuff in order to win an argument. The goal of those podcasts is not to get at the truth. The goal of those podcasts is to win the argument that the LDS church is true. And that's one place where I see Radio Free Mormon as being different. My goal is to get at the truth of things, to try and be as objective and analytical and as dispassionate while being entertaining as possible and see if we can dig down to the bedrock and find out what is what. Radio Free Mormon is not about winning an argument. It's about finding the truth. And I hope that those of you who have listened to Radio Free Mormon will agree with that assessment. Anyway, I hope that you will be able to tune in at what I think is going to be 6 o'clock p.m. Mountain Time next Wednesday, December 9th, 2020, for the inaugural episode of the Mormonism Live Show with Bill Reel and yours truly, Radio Free Mormon. So you can see that there are so many things that I want to do, so many issues that I want to discuss, so many interviews I want to have. And the simple fact of the matter is that if I'm going to be able to get to even part of those, I'm going to need to rely on you to make that $10 monthly donation to Radio Free Mormon. Have you already done so? If not, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do it Now, please, if you have not done so before, make that $10 monthly donation now. Go to the RadioFreeMormon.org website and make that contribution today. You'll feel better. I know I'll feel better. And together, we will keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. Okay, now there's two more announcements that I've got to make before I close off this podcast. And one of them has to do with an update to last week's podcast where we had the group discussion with me, Bill Reel, and Alan and Katie Mount on the hashtag Give Thanks program instituted by President Nelson where he asked every member of the church to go on social media for the next seven days and every day post something that you're grateful for and use the hashtag Give thanks. Now, the update I want to give is the fact that I know I was inundated on my social media feed with so many members of the church giving thanks for this, that, and the other thing. There was a veritable deluge of thanksgiving among members of the church across all social media platforms. And the update is this. Over at a message board that I frequent, which used to be called Mormon Discussions, message board. It's now been reformatted. It's called DiscussMormonism.com. Let me put in a little plug for DiscussMormonism.com. If you want to go to a place where you can rub shoulders with and read the comments of people who are extremely knowledgeable about Mormonism, who are very articulate in their analysis of things Mormon, go to DiscussMormonism.com. Let me give you an example of what it was that one of the posters there did as far as this follow-up to President Nelson's hashtag give thanks campaign. This post was made by a member of the board who goes by the initials IHAQ, which stands for I have a question. But what this poster thought it would be a good idea to do would be to look at the different members 
of the church leadership, i.e. the 12 apostles and even the two counselors to President Nelson to see how well they were doing in following this directive of President Nelson to post on social media for seven days what it was they were thankful for. And what he discovered was that the obedience or the strict adherence of the members of the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency and even President Nelson himself were not exactly up to what we might think they would be doing. Now, we would think that President Nelson himself, of course, would be posting something every seven days across social media platforms, but certainly his counselors in the First Presidency, Dallin Oaks and Henry Eyring, would be doing the same, and of course, all 12 of the apostles would be doing the same, because who's going to be following President Nelson's edicts more strictly than the members of the Quorum of the Twelve and his counselors in the First Presidency. But what IHAQ found was that that was not the case. In fact, the truth of the matter was radically different than what one would expect. Now, I think that you know that all the different members of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve have official social media platforms on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Those are the three different social media platforms on which they typically post. Now, Russell M. Nelson, Russell M. Nelson, in response to his own injunction to members of the church to post about what they were thankful for for seven days, ended up posting only on two days, the 20th of November and the 22nd of November. Now, this report was given by IHAQ on Wednesday, November 25th of 2020, and you can find it at the DiscussMormonism.com message board under the subject, hashtag give thanks, the enlightening Thanksgiving posting record of Nelson and his apostles. So this was given Wednesday, November 25th, which was given six days after President Nelson had given his initial directive. IHAQ looked at all three of the social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And for Russell M. Nelson, he posted only on the 20th and the 22nd. He only posted on two days. And he posted on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter all on those two days, the 20th and the 22nd. So even President Nelson is not following his own injunction. Dallin Oaks is even worse because he posted only on one day. Dallin Oaks posted on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, but only on the 23rd of November not seven days at all. Only one day of thanks could be mustered by Dallin H. Oaks. Henry B. Eyring is exactly the same as Dallin H. Oaks. He posted only on the 23rd as well, and he posted on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now for the Quorum of the Twelve. Russell Ballard, the president, or at least the acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve, posted only on two days. He didn't make it for every day. No, he posted only on the 21st and the 24th. Jeffrey Holland, and. Eh, Big goose egg for Jeffrey Holland. Jeffrey Holland didn't post anything on any of the social media platforms. Dieter F. Uchtdorf, the same thing. He published absolutely nothing on any day on any of the social media platforms. Or should I say he published nichts. David Bednar does better than Dieter Uchtdorf and Jeffrey Holland, but he only posts on one day. He posted on the 22nd. Quentin Cook posted only on one day, the 22nd. Todd Christofferson posted only on one day, the 23rd. Neil Anderson posted on two days, the 21st and the 25th. Ronald Rasband posted only on one day, the 24th. Gary Stevenson, eh, big goose egg for Gary Stevenson too. Garrett Gong 
only on one day, the 24th. Ulysses Suarez, only on one day, the 24th. Dale Renlund, the junior apostle, appears to be the most faithful of all the apostles, including President Nelson himself, because he posted on four days, the 20th, the 21st, the 22nd, then he skipped two days, and then he posted on the 25th. So even Dale Renlund, the one who is the most faithful in observing to do what it was that President Nelson directed the entire church to do, still doesn't post for every day like President Nelson told the members of the church to do. So that is my update, courtesy of the DiscussMormonism.com board and courtesy of the research of IHAQ on that board. That is my update to President Nelson's request that every member of the church post for seven days in a row on social media their thanks for the blessings that God has bestowed upon them. It appears that none of the apostles and none of the members of the First Presidency actually took it seriously, and those who posted nothing at all are Jeffrey Holland, Dieter Uchtdorf, and Gary Stevenson. This may be another instance of do as I say and not do as I do. Okay, so that's the third announcement. The last announcement has to do with Radio Free Mormon's efforts to obtain, through public disclosure requests from the BYU Police Department, the emails that contain the directions to the BYU Police Department as to what they should redact and disclose in response to public disclosure requests that were made early on in the McKenna-Denson case. Now, I've gone over this in a number of podcasts, and I don't want to rehash it here. But the last thing that happened is that I made a public disclosure request for these emails, for these communications. I was denied by the records custodian of the BYU Police Department. I then appealed it to the chief of police who denied my request. I then appealed it to the Utah State Records Committee. And during the process of this appeal, we were able to work out and negotiate with the BYU Police Department the release of the audio of their interview with Joseph Bishop. So that was a huge victory, and I released that audio earlier this year as part of the podcast. But the fight continued for the emails. I wanted to know why it was that the BYU Police Department was blacking out an entire page of their nine-page police report in their initial release of those reports to the media in response to the media's public disclosure request. Because it seemed obvious to me that somebody was calling the shots other than the police department because no police department would be redacting all that information from the police reports in the normal course of business. I've been doing this for a number of years. I've seen a lot of public disclosure requests and the documents that have been produced by the police in response to those requests, requests that I've made of local police agencies. I have never seen anything like this in my life. And so it was obvious to me that somebody other than the police we're calling the shots on this, and I wanted the evidence of what it was that was being said and who was saying it, which would have been contained in email form. Now, the last time we talked about this issue was when I appeared in front of the Utah State Records Committee, and they ended up voting to deny my request. They ruled that the attorney-client privilege applied to all of these emails, and therefore that they should not be released to the public. After that episode, I stopped talking about this issue. But things were going on behind the scene, which I did not tell you about, and that's what I'm going to tell you about now, which is that once the records committee ruled, I had 30 days in which to appeal that decision to a district court in Utah. And what I will reveal to you now is that actually I did appeal that ruling to the district court in Salt Lake City, Utah. 
I filed this within 30 days of the ruling by the Utah State Records Committee. And here is what my petition on appeal says. I'm going to read it to you very quickly. Facts demonstrating petitioner, that's me, is entitled to review and to relief. Number one, BYUPD criminal investigation of MTC President Joseph Bishop. In a letter dated May 16, 2019, petitioner requested documents from respondent Brigham Young University Police Department pursuant to the Government Records Access and Management Act. Grandma. The requested records related to a specific police investigation undertaken by BYUPD in late 2017. The investigation was of Joseph Bishop, whom BYUPD investigated for the alleged rape of McKenna Denson. The rape was alleged to have occurred in the 1980s when McKenna Denson was a sister missionary at the Missionary Training Center, MTC, located on the campus of Brigham Young University and owned and operated by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who also owns and operates Brigham Young University. At the time of the alleged rape, Joseph Bishop was the president of the Missionary Training Center and was a full-time paid employee of the LDS Church. The rape was alleged to have occurred in the basement of the MTC. Because the rape was alleged to have occurred in the MTC situated on the campus of Brigham Young University, BYU was a potential defendant in the civil suit being threatened at the time by McKenna Denson. Also, because Joseph Bishop was a paid employee of the LDS Church, the LDS Church was likewise a potential defendant in the civil suit being threatened by McKenna Denson. Note that McKenna Denson did ultimately file a lawsuit naming the LDS Church as a defendant. When McKenna Denson reported the alleged rape to law enforcement in late 2017, BYUPD conducted the investigation because they had jurisdiction over the MTC, situated as it is on the BYU campus. Section 2. BYUPD improperly responded to grammar requests for information. In March of 2018, Ms. Denson's allegations became public and several grammar requests were made by individuals and media outlets for the BYUPD documents related to the investigation. BYUPD did not respond fully to these grammar requests and undertook to hide a great deal of information from the public in violation of grammar. Number one, BYUPD released only a nine-page narrative report of the two officers who conducted the investigation, even though the BYUPD possessed additional documents and information as part of their investigation. Number two, the nine pages were severely redacted in violation of grammar, including a redaction of virtually the entirety of page six. Number three, BYUPD had obtained a multi-page victim statement from McKenna Denson as part of their investigation. The victim statement was not released pursuant to the grammar request. Number four, additionally, the nine-page written narrative report was redacted in such a way as to hide the fact that Ms. Denson's written statement had been made and that BYUPD was in possession of it. Number five, BYUPD had also obtained an audio tape of their investigative interview with Joseph Bishop. Number six, page six of the police narrative reports described in abbreviated form the interview with Joseph Bishop. This was the page that was almost entirely redacted in the initial BYUPD production of documents to the media. Number seven, a subsequent release of the nine-page narrative reports was provided by BYUPD, which contained fewer redactions on page six, but still maintained some lengthy and inappropriate redactions toward the bottom of the page dealing with the description of the Joseph Bishop interview. Number eight, the information on page six that remained redacted showed that BYUPD had recorded the interview 
with Joseph Bishop. Number nine, BYUPD did not release the audio recording of the Joseph Bishop interview in response to grammar requests. And number 10, additionally, the nine-page reports were redacted in such a way as to hide the fact BYUPD had audio taped their interview of Joseph Bishop and had the audio recording in their possession. In summary... BYUPD had possession of three primary sets of documents and information related to their investigation of Joseph Bishop. One, their narrative reports. Two, the victim statement from McKenna Denson. And three, their audio recording of the nearly one-hour interview with Joseph Bishop. BYUPD sought to hide information from the public in the following ways. One, releasing only the nine-page narrative report, which itself was improperly redacted. Two, not releasing the multi-page victim statement and then redacting the narrative reports to hide the fact that the victim statement even existed. And three, not releasing the audio recording of the Joseph Bishop interview and then redacting the police reports to hide the fact that such an audio recording even existed. Section three, information hidden by BYUPD inculpatory to BYU and LDS Church. Importantly, the information hidden from the public by BYUPD tended to inculpate BYU and the LDS Church in McKenna Denson's threatened lawsuit. The victim statement of McKenna Denson named church leaders who were aware or may have been aware of her allegations against Joseph Bishop at a relatively early date. What LDS church leaders knew and when they knew it was and continues to be a critical issue in the McKenna Denson lawsuit. One of the leaders named in the victim statement was Thomas S. Monson, who was president of the LDS church at the time BYUPD was hiding this information from the public. In the audio recording, Joseph Bishop mentioned being contacted by the office of Carlos A.C. at or around the time of the alleged rape. Carlos A.C. was a general authority of the LDS Church at the time and was the executive director of the missionary program. A duly certified police department, acting on its own in an attempt to fully and fairly respond to a grammar request, would never have made the redactions that were made by BYUPD in this matter. The redactions made by BYUPD have the effect of hiding information that could be damaging to BYU and the LDS Church in the threatened lawsuit of McKenna Denson. Additionally, the information could be embarrassing to BYU and the LDS Church. It is evident that some person or persons was directing BYUPD to make the redactions and that this person or persons was representing the interests of BYU and the LDS Church not the interests of BYUPD in responding properly to a grammar request. Section 4. Petitioner's Grammar Request and Appeal to Records Committee Accordingly, petitioner sent a grammar request on May 16, 2019 to the BYUPD requesting any and all documents in whatever form relating to the decision as to what to redact in response to the initial grammar requests. This request was denied at the BYUPD level and then appealed to the Utah State Records Committee. As part of informal discovery prior to the hearing with the Utah State Records Committee, BYUPD provided petitioner, that's me again, with a privilege log of approximately 40 emails sent to and from different persons that BYUPD said were responsive to petitioner's request. BYUPD did not provide petitioner with the emails themselves. The privilege log showed that approximately five to six attorneys were involved in these emails. 
all of the attorneys claimed to be representing the interests of both BYU and also the interests of BYUPD in making the decisions as to what information BYUPD should redact. The privilege log also showed that three employees of BYU who were not attorneys and not employees of BYUPD were also involved in some of these emails. BYUPD claimed the emails were protected as one, attorney-client privileged, and or two, prepared in anticipation of litigation, and therefore not subject to public disclosure. Petitioner argued, one, that the inclusion in some of the emails of three non-lawyer BYU employees who were not employees of BYUPD vitiated the attorney-client privilege as to those emails, and two, as to all of the emails, it was a conflict of interest under the unusual circumstances of this case for the same attorneys to represent both the interests of BYU, a private company, and also the interests of BYUPD, a public agency. The Utah State Records Committee ordered the documents, which consisted of about 40 emails identified by BYUPD, to be provided them by BYUPD for in-camera review. After review, the Utah State Records Committee ordered that all of the emails were properly classified as protected as being either attorney-client privileged or prepared in anticipation of litigation and denied petitioner's request that they be made public. A copy of that order is attached. Petitioner timely appeals from the committee's order. Relief requested. Petitioner requests, one, that the district court conduct an in-camera review of the emails and make an independent determination as to whether the emails are protected as being either attorney-client privileged or prepared in anticipation of litigation, and two, that even if some or all of the emails are deemed to be protected, that the district court find that the public's interest in knowing about the contents of these emails overrides their classification as protected and order BYUPD to release the emails to petitioner and made public. I filed that notice of appeal on July 9th, 2020. In the interim, BYUPD has filed a motion for summary judgment. I have filed an answer to that motion for summary judgment, and we are now awaiting BYUPD to file their reply to my answer, which is due in the court on December 11th, 2020. Once that happens, my hope and expectation is that the judge who's been assigned to this case, Judge Kent R. Holmberg, will review the same emails that were reviewed by the State Records Committee and be able to give us his determination as to whether any or all of those emails should be released pursuant to my grandma request. While I have great respect for the decision made by the members of the Utah State Records Committee, I just wanted to get a judge's eyeballs on this to see what a judge thinks about this issue and whether any of these emails should be released. I will keep you apprised as to what happens with this case and the ruling of the judge in this matter as events unfold. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.